Hey, Late Night Weirdos, be sure to stick around to the end of the episode to find out how you can get your hands on a free copy of M. Night Shyamalan's latest film, Old. Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We just want you to enjoy yourselves. A gay, pleasant evening for all. Oh, a word of caution. Mom or Pop, go with the kids when they leave the car. We hope you have a wonderful time. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Dead Zone. Welcome back, all you late-night weirdos. That's Danny over there. I'm Whitney, and this is the Dead Zone Screening Room. Hello. Hello. How are you? I am very good. I am good as well. Are you ready to talk about this movie? I'm very ready to talk about this movie. It It's a big one. Yeah. It's, this franchise is huge. It's like the granddaddy of all camp slashers. Yeah, for sure. Well, all right. Let, let's just get business out of the way. So just to recap, a few months ago, Danny and I inherited a traveling drive-in theater and were told to watch horror movies of our choosing to figure out what we want to add to the theater's vault and what to leave behind in the dead zone. The only other rule is to never be late opening the drive-in for those who are able to find us because... Yeah, the theater moves around, it's never in the same place twice, and it's a mystery as to where it'll show up next. But if you can use your knowledge of horror and follow the clues in each episode, you might be able to figure out where the drive-in will show up next. And this month, in honor of Halloween, the most wonderful time of the year, we are wrapping up a series we like to call Slash Away Camp, where we look at some of the most iconic 80s summer slashers that served us all the campfire fun complete with a healthy side of teen hormones and plenty of murdery mayhem. And this week we are looking at the OG Camp Crystal Lakes, Friday the 13th. This one is massive. I think it's one of those that's like, I think for any movie enthusiast, whether you are a true fan of horror or not, if you're going into this this series, it's just, it's quite an undertaking. I feel like when it comes to, if you're wanting to watch all of them, from first to last, you know, or first to the most recent or whatever. It's, there's a lot. (laughs) There, there's definitely a lot. Uh, And of course, right from the jump, I I think we have got to give our spoiler alert. Even in the wiki, it is going to be impossible to talk about this movie without talking about things that it reveals. So right away, we're going to tell you, if you have never seen the original Friday the 13th and have no idea Uh, the story behind it, who the killer is, all that good stuff, please immediately stop right now and (laughs) go and watch it. It is a classic. It's essential viewing. We're going to talk more about that, uh, but we're going to spoil everything and we're going to spoil it very quickly. So now it's your last chance. It's your last chance to go check it out. If you guys are wanting to find it out there streaming, we were able to watch it on Peacock for free. Um, Otherwise, I do know you could like rent it on other platforms. Um, I did look on Shudder as well because we are subscribed there and it's not on Shudder at the moment. So, uh, but like I said, it is on Peacock for free. So definitely, definitely check it out. I think seeing this one unspoiled is, is, is pretty important for any part of this movie. 100%. 100% agree. All right. So uh, 
I mean, right off the top, I think it's only fair. I'm just going to put it out there. This is not my favorite movie in this series. In fact, aside from Tom Savini's amazing makeup effects on the few on-screen kills we do get, I think this movie is a little boring. Now, before you go throwing your hands up in the air like I've committed some horror blasphemy, I mean, how could I not like the film that gave birth to one of the most beloved franchises in horror history? Keep in mind, I'm reviewing this as someone who already knew who the killer was and the twist jump scare at the end going into it. So you take those two things away, and for me, watching it now with fresh eyes as an adult, there's not much else to get excited about. The five minutes of total kill time is not balanced out with enough of anything fun or interesting in between, and as I watched, I just found myself waiting for the next kill. I soon realized I didn't want to watch someone anonymously stalk these kids for an hour and a half. I want to see Jason smash a guy in a sleeping bag against a tree. I want Jason. There, I said it. If I'm going to watch a film from a series with one of the most iconic characters in horror, I want him slicing and dicing his way through our cast of characters, not popping up as a 10-second cameo in a dream sequence. Now, that's not to say I don't recognize the impact this movie has had on the horror genre. And you can't have Jason without his origin story. It's a classic for a reason, and we have so many fun facts and behind-the-scenes info to talk about. I just always want to be honest with my opinion, even if it's not necessarily a popular one. All that being said, please know that as we break this movie down, we're going to roast the hell out of it, just like we do all the movies we talk about. And just because it's not one of my favorites, it's always in the spirit of good fun. I promise we're not here to crap on Friday the 13th. I think that would be horror blasphemy. Yeah, I think we've, we I don't know, have hammered in, into the ground at this point, but I, I think that's one of my favorite things about horror is that there's so many different facets and niches um, and franchises within it that people can get passionate about. And, and, you know, you don't have to be a fan of all of them, but you can, I think pretty much all of us horror fans can find something we enjoy about every single movie. I mean, even as we've said before, even if it's truly awful, it's just badly acted or, you know, the effects are awful, whatever it may be. Us horror fans, we can find something great and <laughs> even the worst of like horror movies. And this is not the worst. Believe me, it's truly not at all. But I think definitely this movie is one of those that truly benefits going in as blind as possible. Because uh, cause when you have a whole movie writing on the twist and the surprise, when that's taken away from you... it's left a little lackluster, you know? You're you're left with nothing. Yeah. A whole lot of nothing. Yeah. Yeah, we just want to make sure that we understand that this is a, a favorite series for a lot of people and we never want anyone to think that we are bad-mouthing that and, yeah. and and putting it down in any way. We, we're all just here to have a good time and talk about a very iconic horror film. Yeah, yeah. And we were even talking about, and I think the best thing to take away from it is like, we're not going to fault the movie for our faults for not having seen it when it was the best time to see it, when it was most appropriate, when the iconic part of it was seeing it in the theater and being shocked. Yeah, absolutely. It certainly isn't the movie's fault that it was spoiled before we saw it. Yeah, so. yeah. And I will say, I did see this movie as a kid, not when it came out. I think I was only 10 when mm-hmm, it came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but I do remember, I have a recollection of seeing it at some point when it was on home video. Uh, but I already knew at that point going in, because so many of my friends had seen it and spoiled it, I already knew what was going on. So there was never a time, unfortunately for me, that I ever got to experience, you know, this big reveal of who the killer is and then this jump scare at the end yeah. because I always knew that they were coming. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I never got that big joy uh, that I think a lot of fans got mm-hmm. by experiencing those things fresh. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, regardless, there's some fun stuff in this movie and we're going to have fun talking about it. Oh, so I'm so excited to talk about some of this stuff. And, and like we just kind of mentioned, I mean, what an iconic way to kind of end off the Slash Away Camp series with, with one of the absolute OGs all slashers from this point especially camp slashers pulled from this movie so I mean we're talking about the foundation here sure now you know this movie of course stole a lot of its stuff from exactly from things that the, yeah. that was already there but the big thing for this movie was its marketing it mm-hmm. it, it had such a huge marketing campaign I believe a million dollars was spent on the marketing. That's saying a lot when this movie only costs half a million to make. Mm-hmm. So it, they really, really tried to mass market it and it worked. And because of the ending, I think it got a lot of repeat business. We're going to get into all of that, but we got to talk about this movie. Yeah. We, we got to talk about it. There's so, so much excited. to talk about. There is so much information. <laughs> I have so many fun facts to share. And I know I'm only scratching the surface. There are so many fantastic documentaries and detailed analysis available about this film and the entire franchise. I know there's going to be a ton of stuff that we just don't have time to cover. Also, because there is so much information available about this movie, during my research, I would also find information that would contradict other information. So with this one, it was a bit more difficult to verify some of the things being presented as fact. Now, you know, we always like to be as accurate as possible when it comes to these fun facts, but I know there is every possibility on this one that I may have something wrong if I do, please let us know. I, I don't want to be spreading false facts. Makes me look stupid. I don't like that. We don't like that. We don't like false facts. <laughs> no one likes the false facts. <laughs> so, yeah, if I've got something in here and I've got it wrong, let me know. Otherwise, I think it's time to get to the wiki. I'm so excited. All right. We'll sit back and relax because we got some good stuff for you. So Friday the 13th is a 1980 American independent slasher film produced and directed by Sean S. Cunningham and written by Victor Miller. It stars Betsy Palmer, Adrian King, and a very young Kevin Bacon, long before he was a movie trivia party trick. Cunningham, who had previously worked with filmmaker Wes Craven on the film The Last House on the Left, was looking to capitalize on the success of John Carpenter's Halloween and set out to, admittedly, rip off the movie itself. Hey, go with whatever works, right? (laughs) Well, the screenplay was completed in mid-1979 by Victor Miller. Miller has stated that he delighted in inventing a serial killer who turned out to be somebody's mother, a murderer whose only motivation was her love for her child, saying, quote, I took motherhood and turned it on its head, and I think that was great fun. 
Miss Voorhees was the mother I'd always wanted, a mother who would have killed for her kids. That seems a, a bit extreme. Yeah. I certainly want a mother that cares for me, but I don't I don't think she needs to be a straight up killer. Yeah, I mean I'm fine if we like draw a line there. Maybe we drop the mommy murder. It's, it's fine. <laughs> Well, this film was shot in September of 1979 with the paltry budget of just $550,000. Filming took place in and around the townships of Hardwick, Blairstown, and Hope in Warren County, New Jersey. The camp scenes were shot at a working Boy Scout camp outside of Hardwick called Camp Nobi Bosco. Believe it or not, the camp is still open and operational today. However, this is private property. Please do not go trying to head up there thinking you can get a tour of the place. And be mindful of the fact this is a place for children. Don't be creepy. They do occasionally hold tours here open to the public and have even brought back some of the original cast members to share their experiences making the film. However, tickets are very limited in very high demand, as you can imagine, and can only be obtained through lottery. Makeup innovator Tom Savini was hired to design the film's practical effects based upon his work in George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Savini's design contributions included crafting the effects of Marcy's axe wound to the face, the arrow penetrating Jack's throat, and Mrs. Voorhees' decapitation by machete. As for the film's iconic score, when Harry Manfredini began working on the project, the decision was made to only play music when the killer was actually present so as to not manipulate the audience. Manfredini also noted that when something was going to happen, the music would cut off so that the audience would relax a bit and the scare would be that much more effective. Because the killer only appears on screen during the final scenes of the film, Manfredini had the job of creating a score that would represent the killer in their absence. So Manfredini takes a cue from the 1975 film Jaws, where the shark is likewise not seen for the majority of the film, but the motif created by John Williams's Two Notes of Dread cued the audience to the shark's invisible menace. Cunningham originally sought a chorus for these moments, but the budget wouldn't allow it. So while listening to a Christoph Penderecki piece of music, which contained a chorus with striking pronunciations, Manfredini was inspired to recreate a similar sound. He came up with the sound kick, kick, ma, 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 from the final reel when Miss Voorhees arrives and is reciting, Killer Mommy! The K comes from kill and the ma from mommy. Manfredini has been quoted as saying, quote, everybody thinks it's kill, 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 cha, cha, cha. And I'm like, cha, 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 what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> to achieve the unique sound he wanted for the film, Manfredini spoke the two words harshly, distinctly, and rhythmically into a microphone and then ran them into an echo reverberation machine. Manfredini's entire score for this franchise became so iconic that in January 2012, La La Land Records released a limited edition six-CD box set containing each of the scores from the first six films. It sold out in less than 24 hours. Wow. That's impressive. That's wild. That's awesome. Once the film had been completed in 1980, a bidding war over the distribution rights ensued between Paramount Pictures, Warner Brothers, and United Artists. 
Paramount ultimately purchased the domestic distribution rights, while Warner Brothers secured rights to the international markets, making Friday the 13th the first independent slasher film to be acquired by a major motion picture studio. Friday the 13th was released on May 9th, 1980 in the U.S., earning nearly $6 million in its opening weekend alone and ultimately finishing domestically with a gross of almost $40 million. It was the 18th highest-grossing film that year, facing competition from other high-profile horror releases such as The Shining, Dress to Kill, The Fog, and Prom Night. The film would go on to add an additional $20 million in international box office receipts, bringing the worldwide total to nearly $60 million. To put that in perspective, of the 17 films distributed by Paramount Pictures in 1980, only one of them, Airplane, returned more profits than Friday the 13th. And people wonder why studios continue to bank on low-budget horror films. (laughs) (laughs) When they work, they work. Well, upon its original theatrical release, the film didn't fare well with critics. Linda Gross of the Los Angeles Times referred to it as a, quote, silly, boring, youth-geared horror movie, end quote. While Dick Shippey of the Akron Beacon Journal suggested that John Carpenter's Halloween played, quote, like Hitchcock when compared to Cunningham's dreadful tale of butchery, end quote. I mostly just included this review so I could say the name Dick Shippey. (laughs) Even famed critic Leonard Maltin initially awarded the film one star, but later changed his mind and awarded the film a star and a half, quote, simply because it's slightly better than part two, end quote. But perhaps in the worst piece of shit move a critic could do, the Chicago Tribune's Gene Siskel, in his disdain for the film and the violence it portrayed, famously spoiled the movie for his readers by giving away the ending without warning, and in a mean-spirited and dangerously unprofessional move, he even doxed star Betsy Palmer by printing her address encouraging people to write the veteran actress in protest. Wow, what the fuck? What a dick. That's the worst. He's an asshole. Well, contemporary reviews did manage to paint the film in a slightly more positive light. On the review aggregator website Rotten Tomatoes, Friday the 13th holds an approval rating of 63%, with an average rating of 5.8 out of 10, making it the highest rated entry in the franchise. The consensus reads, quote, rather quaint by today's standards, Friday the 13th still has its share of bloody surprises and a 70s holdover aesthetic to slightly compel, end quote. But I think Bill Gibron of Pop Matters, who wrote a piece about this film in 2012, summed this movie up best when he wrote, quote, this movie feels at least twice as long as its 90-minute running time and not always in a good way. There are far too many pointless pauses between the bloodletting. On the positive side, Tom Savini's makeup work is flawless, and Betsy Palmer's turn as big bad Pamela V has to go down in history as one of the meanest mothers in the entire horror genre. For those who think it's a classic, think again. Of a type? Absolutely. Of faultless movie macabre? No way. End quote. Friday the 13th has spawned 11 sequels, including a crossover film with a nightmare on Elm Street villain Freddy Krueger. 
Friday the 13th Part 2 finally introduced Jason Voorhees as the primary antagonist, which would continue for the remaining sequels, with the exception of the fifth movie. But believe it or not, Jason would not don his trademark hockey mask until the third film. This mask would, of course, become one of the most recognizable images in popular culture. A reboot to Friday the 13th, produced by Michael Bay, was released theatrically in February 2009 in the hopes of reintroducing Jason to a new generation of horror lovers. So before I get into the synopsis, I know that I have not seen all of the movies. Have you seen all of them? I've definitely not seen all of them. I I know I have seen some of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The same for me. I know that I've seen a few of them, but I can't actually tell you which ones. I know for sure I saw like the 2009. I remember going to see that one in theaters. Yeah, I have not seen the remake I or the reboot. enjoyed it. I know I saw Freddy versus Jason... And I want to say for sure that I've seen part three and four. Yeah, I'm almost positive I've seen four. And I know I've seen another one, but I, I they sometimes run together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's what happens sometimes with these, uh, you know, multiple series or, or multiple parts in these franchises. Is Yeah, sometimes they can get a little muddled and lost and you don't know which ones you've seen. And you might have seen them all. You may have not. It can get a little messy with any franchise. I feel like that has a bazillion movies in its lineup yeah yeah well real quick i'll just read the synopsis for friday the 13th this original one so it says crystal lake's history of murder doesn't deter counselors from setting up a summer camp in the woodsy area superstitious locals warn against it but the fresh-faced young people jack alice bill marcy and ned pay little heed to the old timers then they find themselves stalked by a brutal killer as they're slashed, shot, and stabbed, the counselors struggle to stay alive against a merciless opponent. I like how they make it sound like it was the counselor's idea. Like they just showed up and go, ooh, let's open a camp. <laughs> you know what would be good here? <laughs> a camp. Everyone in town's like, oh, don't do that, you young whippersnappers. That's a mistake. They're like, ah, shut up. <laughs> you kids and your crazy ideas. Nobody camps. You're going to get stabbed in the face. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there there's a person who owns this camp that hires them. There's a reason yes. for them to be there. They don't <laughs> just randomly decide to start a camp. Well, it it is time. The time has arrived. It's time to do some talking. Let's talk about this whole ass crazy movie. All right. Are you ready? Yes. Here we go. So our movie starts out with frogs croaking and birds squawking, or so says our closed captions. Appropriately. We see clouds pass over a full moon. After all, this is a horror movie. We then see a bunch of campers and counselors sitting around a campfire singing camp songs. This is Camp Crystal Lake, June 13th, 1958. But we also see someone else is walking through the cabins observing the younger sleeping campers. And we hear our first kill, 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 ma, ma, ma. We then see our session of camp karaoke again as they sing about milk and honey on the other side. And we see two of the counselors, Barry and Claudette, making the googly eyes at each other. The googs. <laughs> they got the googs. So as the others break off into a rousing rendition of Tom Dooley, our two lovebirds sneak away for a little summer lovin'. But as they're making kissy face up in the barn loft, someone doesn't take too kindly to their canoodling and sneaks upstairs, interrupting our kissing couple. 
The two quickly begin to get dressed. Barry appears to recognize their accuser. However, we never see their face. And in fact, the rest of this scene and the movie will play out from the killer's point of view. As Barry takes a knife to the gut, which we just see the resulting wound of. And then Claudette is briefly chased around until the screen freezes on her screaming face. And she is killed off screen as we switch to the movie's title card and get our opening credits. Very nice. Who doesn't love a cold open kill? I mean, start off with a bang, I say. (laughs) So this opening title sequence with the Friday the 13th logo in kind of 3D crashing through glass. Mm -hmm. So Sean Cunningham was so confident in the movie's title, he commissioned a New York advertising agency to mock up the concept art, and he placed an advertisement to try and sell the idea of the film in Variety using the title alone. They still hadn't written a script and barely had a story idea. It it worked, though. They were able to secure enough funding to start production on the film before the script had even been completed. That is brilliant. Anytime I I have an idea, go in a magazine. (laughs) Just just put the ad. You know what I would think is cool? And then put it in a magazine and then hope somebody else says, I agree. And then they give me their money. Can you imagine showing up on Shark Tank and just being like, look at this artwork <laughs> hear me out it's cool right why don't it's... you guys pitch ideas to me all right <laughs> you're the smart ones you got so much money <laughs> here's you, a picture you... of what could happen <laughs> you come up with the idea with this one i've done all the hard work obviously <laughs> look at this design it's glass for christ's sake <laughs> Well, we next see a young girl, Annie, arrive in Averagetown, USA. It is now June 13th of present day, and Annie appears to have been hitchhiking. She stops to ask a dog how far it is to Camp Crystal Lake. Of course, the dog doesn't have an answer, silly girl. Which is surprising. I was expecting it to respond. I This movie would have been slightly better if it had. Uh, so she heads over to the local diner or general store uh, to ask non-canine people. Uh, <laughs> but when she mentions the name of the camp to the group of several locals, they look at her like she's grown an extra head. They eventually confirm that it's about 20 miles. One of them remarks, Camp Blood, they're opening that back up. To which Annie just laughs and says, can I get a bus up there or something? I mean, are we just going to brush off that Camp Blood comment? <laughs> Seems like it could be important. I, I immediately would be like, hold up. <laughs> you said what now? Uh, uh, someone said blood what? <laughs> the dog out front didn't tell me that. What did you, <laughs> what'd you say? <laughs> he didn't refer to it as that, so I would like to get a clarification on that real quick. Damn dog holding out on me. <laughs> Never trust a dog. Uh, well, turns out old truck driver Enos is making a ride that'll take her about halfway if she's interested. She is, so she introduces herself and they head out. But before we go, there's someone in the scene worth pointing out. So the busboy in the scene is played by the late actor Erwin Keyes, who not only starred in one of my favorite childhood movies that I don't think anyone else ever saw but me it was called private eyes with don knotts and tim conway but he also has an impressive list of creepy credits including nocturna blood rage frankenstein general hospital disturbed asylum tequila body shots legend of phantom rider 
House of a Thousand Corpses. All right, all right. Neighborhood Watch, Shadow Box, El Masquerado Massacre. Makes sense. Evil Bong 3. Oh, a classic. The Wrath of Bong. Yeah, when he makes a comeback. Yep. Dead Kansas, The Caretaker, and the best of all of them. Uh Uh-huh. Dahmer versus Gacy, alongside our girl, Felissa Rose, who played Angela from Sleepaway Camp. Felissa alert. I mean, that boy, he had plenty of work. Yeah, he was doing things, it seems like. him. Gotta keep yourself busy these days, those days, back then. And I need to know (laughs) if anyone else has ever heard or seen Private Eyes. I, I really wish I had, just so I could be like, oh, ah, twas me, <laughs> the other viewer. I'll find it somewhere and make you watch it. It's probably terrible, but when I was a kid, I loved it. <laughs> well, back with Annie and Enos, before they get too far, they're interrupted by crazy Ralph. No shade on Ralph. That's literally how he's credited in the film. And he's like, you're headed up to Camp Blood, aren't you? And Enos is all, God damn it, Ralph, get out of here. Leave people alone. Dude, chill out. He asked one question. <laughs> what God. the fuck, Ralph? <laughs> Where did you get off talking to people? <laughs> well, Ralph then says, you'll never come back. To which Enos says, shut up, Ralph. As they walk away, Ralph yells after them, it's got a death curse. <laughs> I love Ralph. He's just out here trying to warn the people. Uh, he, it's a public service. Yeah. I mean, he's honestly the true hero. He was just out here trying to give people a warning. Really Nobody is. listened. So Crazy Ralph is played by the late character actor Walt Gorney. He has a few other creepy credits. He had a small uncredited role as a subway driver in the 1976 version of King Kong. He was also in a sci-fi horror movie called Day of Animals. Plus, most fans of the franchise know Gorney reprised his role as Crazy Ralph in Friday the 13th Part 2, Electric Boogaloo. But they may <laughs> not have realized that he is the voice of the opening narrator in Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood. That's really interesting. There you go. Well, the character of Crazy Ralph was meant to establish two functions, one to foreshadow the events to come and two to be our red herring. So Cunningham has stated that he was apprehensive about including the character and is not sure if he accomplished his goal of creating a new suspect. I mean, I never really thought of nope, of him as a suspect. Nope. I I loved him. I was just like, here's Ralph trying to give people some news and nobody's listening. And ever once was like, Ralph did it. (laughs) Ralph and the dog were two of my favorite characters. (laughs) Well, we next see Enos get a little too handsy as he helps Annie into the truck. I mean, nothing happens. I just don't think his hands need to be on her ass for her to get in the truck. Yeah, I don't feel like anybody needs an ass lift getting anywhere. Absolutely not. Well, by the way, the company name on the side of this truck is, it's a real local company still in business today. In fact, the phone number listed on the side of the truck is still their real phone number. And the company claims they still get a few calls every year from fans asking about the movie. That's hilarious. (laughs) Can you imagine? Okay, first off, what are those questions? And B... What are those answers? I mean, like, what are they going to say? It, I'm sure it's just people going, is, is this the truck in the Are movie? you a truck? they like, yes, yes, it's our stupid truck. Jeez. <laughs> Don't call these people and bother them, please. They are not a truck. They are people. <laughs> Keep that in mind. When we next see Enos and Annie's drive, Enos asks if she's been told by her new boss, Steve Christie, about what happened up at the camp. Annie says all she knows is she's been hired to cook for 50 kids and 10 staff. 
So Enos tells her that back in 58, there were two kids murdered, and before that, a boy died in 57. Since then, there's been a bunch of fires, and no one knows who did any of it. Then they were going to open up again in 62, but the water was bad. Now Christy has sunk tens of thousands of dollars into the place, and he's just going to end up going broke. And he should quit now and get out while she can. Enos then drops her off at the halfway point, which just so happens to be in front of a cemetery. Talk about foreshadowing. (laughs) And tells her good luck. So Annie here is played by actress Robbie Morgan. She's only had one other creepy credit in a movie called Dutch Hollow. But for this scene, Rex Everhart, who plays Enos, did not film the truck scenes with Morgan and vice versa to make room in the truck for the camera. So both Robbie and Rex had to either act to an imaginary person or occasionally to Tazo Savrakis, Tom Savini's assistant, would sit in the truck as a stand-in. That's very interesting. I always think that's so, like I said, interesting because you just don't think about that when you're watching these movies about how you know we're basically playing the cameraman mm-hmm. in some of these scenes and it's just so bizarre to think about them just having this one-way conversation especially when they are like a heated or emotional or passionate conversation on whatever aspect it just seems like that would be so bizarre I mean they do it every day they that's what they do it's part of their job it's acting, that is acting. but to me in my head I'm like that would just be so strange yeah it does seem very <laughs> weird but you know thanks to the magic of editing and putting those things together if it's done right like it was here, you you just, you can't tell. You have no idea. Yeah. I also enjoyed the part in the scene where he is giving her like the rundown of stuff that happened and he's just like, quit. And she's like, I can't. <laughs> it's just like, I just loved his abrasive reaction, just telling her everything that was wrong with it. And he was like, quit. <laughs> and she's just so in it. Well, I can't, you know, I tried, but the dog said I couldn't. So I'm not going to do it. I am committed at this point, Enos. Sorry. <laughs> Well, we next see more of our camp staff making their way to Camp Crystal Lake in a bright red pickup truck accompanied by some upbeat banjo music, which will always make me think someone changed the channel to the Muppet movie. (laughs) If your movie is not Deliverance or does not have puppets in it, the banjo has no place here. It just seems weird and out of place. (laughs) Well, these crazy kids are Ned, Marcy, and Jack. Jack and Marcy appear to be a couple, and Ned wants to know if they think there will be other pretty girls at the camp this summer. Marcy asks Ned if sex is all he thinks about, to which Ned admittedly denies and says sometimes he just thinks about kissing girls. The three of them arrive at the famed campgrounds, and we get our first glimpse at the now-famous Camp Crystal Lake sign. Apparently established in 1935. I feel like the the line, is there any more, you know, pretty girls or are there going to be any more pretty girls like you at this camp? This whole, like, uh, I guess, obsession with, like, the pretty girls, because it keeps coming up, like that line or, or similar lines to it throughout this movie is like yeah, are, Enos had asked that of Annie yeah. when they were walking to the truck are all the girls going to be as pretty as you up there at that camp yeah it is so uh off-putting and I'm going to need gentlemen and really anybody anybody let's just not ask questions like that that's it's a little bit bizarre yeah it puts the girl on the spot makes her feel uncomfortable and also how does she know she hasn't been there. she's where you are <laughs> how do we know who's going to be there yeah, I, I know they think it's flattering, but I'm just trying to give you a compliment saying yeah. that you're pretty. I, I get it. It's, don't. It's fine. 
Also, I just feel like there's such a difference in compliments sometimes. Like you can be like, are there pretty girls like you where you're going? Or you can just be like, hey, you're pretty. And then keep walking. <laughs> there's That's two totally different vibes. Like if yeah, somebody was like, I'm out and about and they're like, hey, I think you're really pretty. Or like, hey, I like your hair. That's great. Thank you so much. But if you're going to be like, are there pretty girls like you where you're going? No. <laughs> Fuck off. I don't care if I'm going to camp or a grocery store. I don't care who's going to be there. Don't ask me a creepy question like that. Enos. <laughs> also not fond of your name. <laughs> but there is like that general undertone of like creepy guys in this movie I do have to comment on. It's just like the lines that they say sometimes and the way they're too handsy with the girls just in general. There's no like space there. They're just like hands like will touch their face or like put their hair behind their ears. It's like yep. fuck off. But yeah, we're going to have one more encounter. <laughs> but luckily after that it 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 tames up maybe a little bit, except for good old Ned. We'll talk more about him. <laughs> but speaking of Ned, so Friday the 13th was Mark Nelson's first feature film. Mark plays Ned. And when he went in for his first audition, the only thing he was given to read were some comedic scenes. Quote, it was only after they offered me the part that they gave me the full script to read and I realized how much blood was in it. End quote. So the character of Ned is often credited for giving birth to the comic relief character in horror films. It's also worth mentioning our only actor in this film to go on to have an A-list career, and that is, of course, Kevin Bacon, who plays Jack. Kevin has had quite a few creepy credits to his name, including one of my all-time favorites, Tremors. He was also in the original Flatliners, Stir of Echoes, Hollow Man, The Darkness, You Should Have Left. Plus, I just found out this information as I was doing my research for this film. So if you haven't heard it yet either, I am tickled to announce Kevin is currently filming The Toxic Avenger. <gasps> I don't know if it's a remake or a reboot, but it also stars Peter Dinklage... Oh, and Elijah Wood. Oh, and wow. I am giddy about it. That's crazy. I'm very excited. I am too. Well, our trio pull up to the camp where we see the new owner, Steve Christie. This is going to be creepy guy number two. And he is chopping up some wood, sand shirt, and rocking some 80s cutoff jeans. I never understood cutoff jeans in the 70s and 80s. We had shorts available then. I don't know why someone would waste a perfectly good pair of jeans to make a whole pair of shorts. <laughs> I, I I think the idea was that when you got holes in your jeans, you just turned them into shorts. That was, yeah. Of course, before it was preferred that you have holes in your jeans. Fashion is confusing. It is very confusing. I cannot keep track of the rules. <laughs> anyway, Steve ain't fucking around and immediately puts everyone to work, barely taking enough time for introductions. We're also introduced to Alice, another counselor who's already been helping around the camp, and she takes the three newcomers off to their cabins to change. In the next scene, we see Alice working on fixing the gutter on a cabin when Steve comes up to help her. He then picks up her sketchbook, which she has outside with her while she's working on the gutters for some reason, <laughs> and starts looking through it without asking, rude, <laughs> He compliments her drawing. She says she wishes she had more time to work on it. He tells her she's pretty, but wonders out loud if she's not fond of his advances. He tries to fish for an answer. She tells him it's nothing personal. He says to give it a week, and if she's still not happy there, 
he'll take her to the bus station himself. Even though we just learned from the scene with Annie and the locals that there is no bus, but who needs continuity? (laughs) He then creepily puts his hands on her face and runs it through her hair and onto her shoulder. He then says, thanks, Alice. Oh, it's so creepy. It is. No. Bad older man in his 30s. Gross. Keep your hands to yourself, please. Uh, (laughs) Also, dude, she is just not into you. Yeah, it's very clear. You can see it all over her face. And like the whole like, I'm I'm gathering you're not into this. Cricket sounds. (laughs) Exactly. No shit, Sherlock, she definitely didn't say yes. So continue to gather. (laughs) Gather on the way out the door, please. So, Skeevy Steve is played by actor Peter Brower. The only other creepy credit he had is an episode of that bizarre horror comedy we've talked about before, The Heart She Holler with Patton Oswalt mm-hmm. and Amy Sedaris. That's the one that also starred Judith Roberts, who played Mary Shaw in Dead Silence. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, also, our dear Alice is played by actress and artist. She's actually a very accomplished artist. Adrian King... Uh, She has quite a few creepy credits on her resume, including Friday the 13th Part 2, Electric Boogaloo, (laughs) Wolf, Psychic Experiment, The Butterfly Room, Silent Night, Bloody Night, The Homecoming, Killer Therapy, Jason Rising, a Friday the 13th fan film that just came out this year, and she was also in Tales of Poe with none other than the late, great Desiree Gould, who played Aunt Martha, the real villain of Sleepaway Camp. (laughs) Again, everything is connected, people. It is. I love that. Also, apparently King has suffered some real-life horrors. Originally, the character of Alice was to be reoccurring in the series, like Laurie Strode in the Halloween series. But after the release of Friday the 13th, she was stalked and terrorized by an obsessive fan to the point that she was once held at gunpoint. Oh my gosh. Thankfully, she was able to defuse the situation and survived. But the character of Alice was limited in the sequel at King's request. And once she had filmed her part, she took a hiatus from acting for nearly 20 years. But her encounter with tragedy didn't end there. On January 25th, 1990, King was in her home watching television in Cove Neck, Long Island, when a plane crashed just 50 yards from her home. Holy shit. King said the experience was like an earthquake and that portions of her home caved in. The tragedy caused 73 fatalities, including eight of the nine crew members, and King herself stated she and her husband assisted in pulling body parts out of trees. Oh my god! This was Avianca Flight 52, a regularly scheduled flight from Bogota to New York that crashed after running out of fuel. King was in traumatic shock therapy for two years following the incident. That is wild. I had never heard anything about that. No. That is unbelievable. I can't even imagine. Well, she has talked about both of these incidences in interviews before. And just, you know, the amazing strength that she has. She still does cons, circuits, and promotes this movie all the time. And has just been a huge supporter of it. And knowing that she has been through these things, but still you know, has the strength to talk about it, you know, good for her. Yeah, no kidding. I can't, 
I can't even imagine like dealing with the trauma of having a stalker like that and dealing with that and then still being able to go on and do even just a limited appearance in the second one. I can't imagine being a strong enough to do that and and what that must have felt like during her hiatus of just kind of constantly being in fear and then and then hitting with being hit with this wallop of a a fucking plane crash in her yard is just that girl she deserves all the vacations Uh, well she is a real life hero yeah we applaud her no kidding well, next we see Alice go down to the docks on the lake to ask Bill, another staff member, if he needs any other supplies. We also get another POV shot that makes us believe someone is watching from the woods, but we don't hear that classic and it's really set up well because there are several times in this movie, because we get so many of these POV shots, that you think, oh, This is the killer. The killer's watching them. We're seeing this from their point of view. But then the the camera will like push in on someone and get close and you think, oh my God, the killer's right behind him. And then that person will turn around and not react to anything. So nothing was ever there. So it does this really great job of keeping you you know, off balance, not Mm -hmm. knowing, is this the killer? Should they be in danger? And I really applaud that throughout this film. They, they did a phenomenal job of setting that up and using that music so effectively. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it lends a hand, uh, just to kind of amp up the all around creepiness, you know, even if say something, uh, thematic or huge or grand epic isn't happening on the screen when you're, when you're dealt with that, um, score like that it helps to heighten that anxiety as the viewer that you're just kind of like why isn't this person more worried or should you be just as you know not worried as them and keeps you on edge and I love I love when a movie can do that with just music or just a sound effect I think that's amazing well Bill tells her he needs more paint thinner and wants to know if the others have arrived Alice tells him everyone is there except Annie and that she'll tell Steve about the paint thinner that's it this was a whole scene about paint thinner <laughs> riveting content <laughs> so bill here is played by harry crosby he doesn't have any other creepy credits but he is one of the sons of white christmas crooner bing crosby there you go claim you to fame go. well next we see steve is taking off into town but not before making sure everyone has their marching orders he takes off in his jeep and ned says to the group quote He neglected to mention that downtown they call this place Camp Blood. And then they all just head off to do their task. (laughs) These are the most no-fuck-giving teens I've ever seen. I take that back. That's all teens. They don't care, but still. (laughs) That's twice now someone has mentioned Camp Blood. I mean, that would give me questions. Yeah. (laughs) Just a couple. Maybe we elaborate on that. (laughs) But everyone else is just like, huh, quirky, and moves on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll rethink the name later. I don't know. I don't want to talk about loud. <laughs> well, next we see another staff member, Brenda, setting up the archery range. After she places one of the large bullseyes up on its stand, an arrow comes flying in, hitting the target and barely missing Brenda. Turns out our archer is Ned, who just goes, ta-da, like she's supposed to be fucking proud of this. <laughs> well, she's not, and she yells at him, are you crazy? But he's all, you're beautiful when you're angry. He's so focused on trying to flirt with the girl that he's oblivious to the fact that he put her life in danger just to get her attention. 
Side note here, apparently special effects supervisor Tom Savini performed the arrow shot. She must have really trusted the hell out of him. (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine he's not actually standing that far away, but still, I think recent news events have reminded us that tragic accidents do happen on set. This would just make me very nervous. Yeah. Well, in the next scene, we see Annie still walking to the camp. We then see a Jeep that looks very similar to Steve's pull over and give her a ride, although we can't see who's driving. Annie makes small talk, even though her companion never speaks. She says, guess I always wanted to work with children. I hate when people call them kids. Sounds like little goats. (laughs) But when you've had a dream as long as I had, you'll do anything. What in the random barnyard hell is she talking about? (laughs) All that checks out, I think. (laughs) Also, was it always her dream to work as a cook at a camp? (laughs) Perhaps we should aim higher. I I don't know. Uh, We see the Jeep drive on and right past the turnoff to Camp Crystal Lake. So Annie points this out and is all, I think we missed our turn. Annie gets concerned and starts begging the driver to stop, but the driver continues on. Annie then decides to jump out of a moving vehicle. All right, Annie, the badass. (laughs) And she runs off into the woods. The driver then stops and pursues Annie, giving us more of those POV shots. At one point, Annie thinks she's lost her stalker as she slows down. And we see her get whipped in the face by a branch that came off the cameraman in front of her. Why would you not edit that out? (laughs) Annie then trips, because of course she does, and falls right at the feet of her mystery foe she stands up pleading for her life when a knife is presented that slashes her throat and we get the first of Savini's amazing effects it is an incredible practical neck prosthetic that actually allows the wound to open up as the actress moves which causes the blood that's being pumped from a tube just off screen to ooze out It is really well done. Uh All of the makeup effects that we actually do see on screen are very well done. Savini is a master at his craft, and they still hold up today. I mean, it's obvious they're 80s effects. We've come a long way in the world of makeup effects in the past 40 years. Holy shit, this movie is over 40 years old. That's wild. Now I'm even more impressed. (laughs) They look awesome yeah they really do 40 year old film i agree i absolutely agree so actress robbie morgan only appeared on set for one day to shoot all of her scenes uh and she goes down in movie history as the first modern day kill of the friday the 13th series we next go back to the campgrounds and see all of our staff members taking a little break down at the lake We also see through more POV shots that someone is watching them, and we do get that kill, 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 ma, ma, ma. So you know it's serious. (laughs) It's real this time. (laughs) It's for real. Brenda thinks she sees someone in the woods, but when Marcy asks her about it, she just says it's nothing. We then have Ned come up in the water from underneath her, making Brenda scream, and they're all giggling and having a good time. They soon decide it's time to head back to work, but something's wrong with Ned and he's struggling in the water. Then, in the most impressive coordination of teenagers I've ever seen in my life, everyone jumps into action. 
Brenda is the first one down the dock and back into the water with Jack shortly behind her, which Kevin Bacon lands with a painful-looking belly flop. Bill and Marcy head out on a canoe. Everyone merges on the spot where Ned went under. Soon, Brenda pulls Ned up, and the group gets him to the dock. Brenda begins to administer CPR, but we soon learn it was all a trick so Ned could lock lips with Brenda. Come on, Ned. Oh, my God. Gee, Dad, how'd you and Mom meet? Well, kids, near missing her with an arrow was just a warm-up to her affections. The real romance started when I forced everyone into a traumatic situation by faking my drowning. (laughs) Sounds romantic. (laughs) I'm an (laughs) asshole. Well, we then cut back to the POV of the killer, and I guess we all know who the next victim will be. Thank goodness. Also, I mean... These kids are really well-trained. Steve definitely vetted his staff properly. I feel they are all highly trained and can handle any emergency situation. I would totally feel comfortable sending my kids to Camp Blood, uh, Crystal Lake. Yeah, yeah. I feel safe in their hands. I mean, they sprang into action. They really did. Did not hesitate. They were all in that water like, we got work. Oh, he's in danger. Got a blast. (laughs) Our calling, it's time. (laughs) Is everything we train for, people? Wonder Twins, activate! Come alive! <laughs> well, in our next scene, we see Alice getting changed after swimming. But when she approaches her dresser, there's a huge snake on the floor. And believe it or not, I actually have to give a trigger warning here for animal cruelty because of something really fucked up that reportedly happened during this scene. So Alice calls for Bill, who just so happens to be outside cutting down weeds with a machete. He comes in and is all, what do I do? He, he says it like that. What do I do? <laughs> Take an acting class? I don't know. <laughs> She's all like, kill it. Eventually, the rest of the staff shows up and everyone's freaking out, but yet also on the floor, like the least safe place to yeah, be if yeah. there's a snake. <laughs> Maybe if we get on the floor and act like a snake, we'll know where the snake is. I think the scene is supposed to play as funny, but it's just awkward and weird. Eventually, the snake gets flushed out and Bill chops it with the machete. But the thing is, that was a real snake. And you can tell it was a real snake that we just watched get killed for no other reason than to make a movie. But wait, it gets worse. This scene wasn't even originally scripted. They come up with the idea on set. Borrow a dude's pet snake and don't even tell them what they're about to do. I'm sorry, that's fucked up. Yeah. I don't like it. Makes me sad. I'm very sad for Snake. Moving on. R.I.P. Snake. (laughs) Pour one out for the snake tonight. (laughs) We barely knew you, Snakey. (laughs) Little danger noodle. Aww. Well, we next get a scene showing Marcy and Brenda off to start dinner when a cop pulls up on a motorcycle. Of course, Ned comes running out in his best cultural appropriation, acting a fool as usual. Ned, you cannot die soon enough. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Officer Dorf here, that's his actual credited name, Dorf, uh, wants to know who these people are and what they're doing here. He represents authority in this movie, so we have to make sure he looks like the idiot, and he suspects that they're all on drugs. 
Colombian gold, grass, hash, the weed. <laughs> the kids ask if they can do anything to help, and Officer Dorf informs them that he's looking for Ralph, the town crazy. Then Ned has to pipe up and go, crazy? There's no one crazy around here. Shut up, Ned. <laughs> Dorf gets a call over the radio requesting him back in town. He tells them all to keep their nose clean because we ain't going to stand for no weirdness out here. We're not going to stand for it. And then they all laugh at him because adults are stupid. <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> Trying to keep us safe. <laughs> so Officer Dorf here is played by actor Ron Milkey. I uh, think I'm pronouncing that correctly. If I am, I'm sorry. Your name is Milky because it creeps me out. <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah. It sounds unpleasant. You don't like the word milky? I don't. This is something new I've learned. All right. Thank you, Friday the 13th. Well, he does have some other creepy credits to his name, including Case of the Full Moon Murders, A Return to Salem's Lot, Satan's Playground, Torture Chamber, and His Name Was Jason, a Friday the 13th fan film. Also, Ron had never ridden a motorcycle before filming, and it's quite obvious when he drives away. He's very <laughs> unsure on that thing. And he has said in interviews that it did fall over on him once. Hey, no shade. I don't know how to drive one of those things either. I would have been on my ass. It's just so funny. You know, this tough-ass cop, and he gets on his yeah. bike, and then he's like, <laughs> Got away from me, sorry. <laughs> Well, next we see Alice in the kitchen cleaning up. Since Annie turned out to be super unreliable by getting herself killed, she goes over to put some pots up in the pantry. And when she opens the door, crazy Ralph is standing there and the music comes in really loud, scaring the shit out of me. That one got me. That one got me. Yeah, got me too. It got Alice, too, whose scream brings Marcy and Ned in to investigate. Ralph tells them he's a messenger of God, and this place has a death curse. And if they stay here, they're all doomed. Well, the kids kick him out, and he hops on his bike and rides away, warning them one more time they're doomed. Doomed! Doomed, I say! Well, he rides away much smoother than Dorf did. Ralph really definitely has more confidence. <laughs> I still love Ralph. Obviously, this whole thing was to make sure the audience still has Ralph as a red herring. So they needed to make sure we know that he's close by. Because the sun's going down and pretty soon, we're going to get to stabby stabby. Stabby stabby time. Well, in the next scene, the kids are making themselves dinner. Alice notices the lights won't turn on. So Jack and Brenda and Bill decide to go to the generator room to see if they can get it started. They can, and they did. And so now we have lights. That's it. That, again, was this whole, like, ten-minute-long scene <laughs> just to make sure we know they have lights. We next see Jack and Marcy off on the campgrounds having a little smoochy face time. This is seen by Ned, who gets all jealous and sad because he can't figure out why his danger flirting hasn't paid off yet. So Ned heads off by himself, but soon sees an unknown person in her cabin. Ned calls out to them, but they don't answer, so he does the only logical thing and follows them inside. We then cut back to Jack and Marcy. Jack all of a sudden becomes a 60-year-old man and feels the need to comment on the weather. Winds come up, shifted a good 180 degrees... They then create the shittiest lightning effect I've ever seen <laughs> by just flashing some studio lights on and off at them. Yeah, it just looks like paparazzi <laughs> taking a picture or something. It's so horrible. It's <laughs> almost like someone just had a flashlight on, off, on, <laughs> off. 
Jack then says, it's going to storm. Going to tear down the valley like a son of a gun. What teenager talks like that? I love this scene because it's like he literally does like the whole like stage thing where he kind of looks towards the light, steps in front of her, and he's like, it's going to tear down that valley like a son of a gun. Like he's This in was his it. moment. It, it was his moment. Yeah. And, you know, no one talks like that. Old men who sit in parks together talk like that. While, well, <laughs> the other one just goes, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. So silly. Well, Marcy <laughs> then tells Jack about a reoccurring dream she has where it's raining really hard and then the rain turns to blood and the blood washes away in little rivers. But Jack just assures her it's just a dream and suggests they move inside before it starts raining. This leads us to our film's one and only sex scene as the two duck into a cabin to take refuge from the storm. But first, back in the main lodge, Alice, Bill, and Brenda are hanging out by the fire. We also see Harry Crosby, who plays Bill, inherited a little musical talent from his father, Bing, and this is really him playing the guitar in this scene. It's really good, actually. He's very good. But once the mini-concert has completed, the trio decide they're going to play Strip Monopoly, where instead of paying your property taxes with cold hard cash, you pay your debts with articles of clothing. Brenda also suggests Alice see if Marcy left any grass. A little devil's lettuce, if you will. (gasps) The weed? The weed. Well, back with Jack and Marcy. If the cabin's a-rockin', don't come a-knockin' as the two are getting down to sexy business. We see Marcy squeeze a little of Kevin's bacon in a little booty shot. We also see that these two crazy kids are not alone as the camera pans up to reveal Ned's dead body lying on the top bunk above them. Looks like Danger Boy danced too close to the devil and done gone and got his throat slashed off screen. ruh Well, after the couple has knocked their boots, Marcy says she needs to go pee because Jack is lying on her bladder. I mean, he wasn't. They're lying side by side. But I get it. You gotta (laughs) pee after sex. It happens. (laughs) Well, this leaves old Jack alone in the cabin to chillax and smoke a doobie. But soon the pooling blood from Ned's dead body starts to drip down onto Jack's forehead. And as he reaches up to see what's dripping, a hand comes up from under the bed, pinning Jack's head down to the bed as an archery arrow is poked up through his neck from under the bed. Blood spurts out of the wound as we watch the life drain from Jack's eyes. This is probably one of the most iconic kills in horror history yeah absolutely this effect was so incredible for its time people had never seen anything like it Uh, critics were horrified kids loved it and it almost got screwed up the blood that you see spurt through the wound that was originally being controlled by tom savini's assistant tazzo with a manual pump while savini pushed the arrow through the prosthetic neck piece but the tube attached to the pump popped off so tazzo immediately grabbed it and just started blowing through it which caused the blood to spurt out mimicking arterial spray and saving the shot it just looks fantastic even with the newer high def transfer where you can clearly see the difference in skin tone Mm -hmm. between the prosthetic and kevin bacon's actual skin you still have to be in awe of what it took to pull that off yeah yeah absolutely well we next see marcy taking care of that squished bladder problem while she's in the restroom we see someone else enter Marcy finishes up and heads to the sink to wash up, but not before getting in a quick impression of Catherine Hepburn. Not sure why 
that was needed. <laughs> she then goes to turn the water on, but the sink doesn't appear to be working, so she has to turn it on underneath. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about, where stuff is happening, but yet nothing is actually happening. Yeah. Like, this scene goes on for so long, but she's not really doing anything interesting. I suppose it's meant to build tension, but drawing out a scene doesn't build tension. It just makes it longer. <laughs> if you want to build tension, you have to do things that put the audience in suspense. Fixing a sink and invoking Miss Hepburn do nothing to build tension. Well, next, Marcy thinks she hears something and suspects the others might be playing a trick on her. So she walks toward the showers and throws back some of the curtains, but no one's there. She says, must be my imagination, as behind her we see the shadow of an axe being lifted into the air. As she turns around, the axe is pulled back, clanking into the metal hanging lamp above it. Marcy screams as the axe is brought down right in to Marcy's face, which we see in all of its magnificent glory. Kind of. <laughs> it is another Savini stunner. This effect is sold as soon as the axe hits the lamp because we never actually see the axe collide with Marcy's face. We just see the axe hit the lamp and then cut to the axe already embedded in Marcy's face. But because Savini set that up with that sound of metal hitting metal, the audience puts weight behind the swing of that axe and remembers it as if we actually see the axe going into her face. It is an amazing effect. It's sleight of hand and the magician has convinced you you've seen something you have it. It's fantastic. It's so good. If this movie was more of that and less generator turning on and sync fixing, <laughs> it would have been so much better. <laughs> Well, next, back at our round of Strip Monopoly, things are moving along as more skin is being revealed when all of a sudden the front door blows open. Bill jumps up and gets it closed, but this somehow reminds Brenda that she left her windows open in her cabin. It's been storming for like an hour. Yeah. And you just now remember your windows are open? <laughs> yeah, I thought that scene was funny, too, because they even talk about it. They're like, oh, man. I hope that, you know, the other people are going to stay safe out there and, you know, stay where it's not going to be raining and wet. And they're like worried about smoking a dube and playing a monopoly. And yeah, it's not until the door open, blows open. It's like, oh, shit, my whole place is going to be wet. <laughs> exactly. It's <laughs> like you've been aware of this rain for a while. Uh, so she says they'll have to finish the game another time. And she leaves for her cabin, leaving Bill and Alice alone. Well, back in town, we see Steve at the local diner talking with the waitress, Sandy. He says he's got to get back. He's got six new counselors that are like babes in the woods. Sandy says they'll be okay if they know enough to come out of the rain. Steve asks Sandy what he owes. Sandy answers, just a night on the town, Steve, to which Steve says, come on now, you know what I mean. And Sandy says, that's okay, two and a quarter. <laughs> he pays her $3 and tells her to keep the change. He tipped her a quarter. That's nice. You're an asshole, Steve. That's nice. Again, what was the point of the scene? <laughs> Other than for us to learn Steve's a big old cheapskate. Yeah. And a chance for me to tell you that Sandy here is played by the late Sally Ann Golden, who also appeared in the classic horror crime drama, Alice Sweet Alice from 1976. Oh, very interesting. Alice also happens to be the name of our final girl in this movie. So many Alice's, sis, sis. <laughs> Alice I? What's the plural of Alice? <laughs> 
Well, we next see Brenda in the bathroom brushing her teeth and getting ready for bed. We also see someone is watching her from the showers, but there's none of that music, so nothing ever happens. We then switch back to Steve, whose Jeep has broken down. Luckily, another cop just so happens to be driving by and offers to give him a lift back to camp. Well, back with Brenda, we now see her crawl into bed with a good book, but soon she starts to hear what sounds like someone calling for help. So Brenda follows the voice outside in the rain. Brenda keeps calling out to the voice. The voice will answer, over here, and Brenda will chase it, but she can never seem to find who's calling for her. She makes her way onto the archery range, and someone turns the lights on, putting Brenda in almost a spotlight. Brenda says, come on out. You're not funny anymore. And as the camera cuts back to the main lodge, we hear Brenda scream off in the distance. At the main lodge, Bill returns from checking on the generator, which he says is fine. I mean, the lights are on. We can all see that it's fine. So I have no idea why you're off checking the generator. (laughs) Just Uh, made sure it's still there. (laughs) Didn't escape. I was worried. I I thought for a minute that these were all magically working on their own, but nope, the generator is still powering them. (laughs) Alice tells him she thought she heard Brenda screaming and that someone had turned on the lights to the archery range. Bill says he doesn't see any lights, to which Alice says, well, they're off now. (laughs) This, (laughs) This movie... So Bill and Alice go to investigate. They make it to Brenda's cabin, but instead of finding Brenda there, they find a bloody axe in her bed. Alice says, what's going on? Don't worry, Alice. Not a lot makes sense in these movies. We're just here for the stabby stabby. The dude, <laughs> she's alarmingly too calm, though, for finding is. an axe in her friend's she's bed. She's just like, you guys. What is this? This is a... I'm being punked right now. Where's Ashton? Uh, is the town's prankster... <laughs> Around here. <laughs> Coming in here to Camp Blood trying to play a little trick on me. I don't appreciate it. All right. I'm going to go back inside. <laughs> well, the two continue to check the other cabins and the bathroom before coming to the conclusion they should call someone. Now, they make their way to the office but don't have keys, so they have to break a window pane in the door to get in. Uh, I actually really like how the rest of the shot plays out. While Alice and Bill head inside, the camera stays outside and captures the action inside through the windows as it pans to the left. Bill tries both the office phone and the pay phone, but they discover neither are working as the camera pans over to the telephone line on the outside of the building, showing that it's been cut. It's a nice way of having your characters discover a problem while simultaneously having your audience discover its cause. It heightens the audience apprehension knowing they have information that the characters don't. It's well played, Cunningham. Well played. Well played. I was standing outside that house the whole time saying, look at these phone lines, big goobs. They're cut. <laughs> Y'all ain't going to be able to use that phone. Y'all in danger. Someone get Alice excited. <laughs> well, next, Bill and Alice try the camp truck, but it doesn't seem to want to start. Alice suggests they hike out, but Bill thinks it's too far and they should just wait for Steve. Cut to Steve being driven by Sergeant Tierney. The officer says, it's not bad enough to have Friday the 13th. We have a full moon. And that's the only time in this entire movie that anyone actually says it's Friday the 13th. I mean, the dates shown on the screen at the beginning say it's June 13th. 
but they never specify that it's a Friday. So if that cop hadn't said it, there would be nothing in this movie that ties it to the title. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, the two make small talk, and Sergeant Tierney gets a call over the radio telling him there's been a horrible accident that he needs to respond to. So Tierney pulls over and tells Steve that this is where they have to part ways, and he takes off. Can you imagine? I mean, (laughs) I have no idea how far or close they are to the camp, but just to leave him in the middle of nowhere seems like kind of a dick thing to do. Yeah. Especially for a cop. (laughs) It just seems like you should safely get someone to their destination. (laughs) I got to take this back. Good luck. (laughs) Got a blast. So Sergeant Tierney here is played by actor Ron Carroll. He has some creepy credits, including House, House 2, The Second Story, and Deep Star 6, all of which also happen to be produced and or directed by Sean Cunningham, who also produced and directed this movie. Oh, that's fun. We watched House last year, right? For the first time? We did. It was a fun one. It was uh, it was cheesy. It's cheesy. It's cheesy good fun. Exactly. Which Cunningham seems to have down pat. <laughs> well, Steve hoofs it on foot the rest of the way, and once he reaches the campgrounds, someone is there to greet him and shines a light in his eyes. Steve says, who is that? But then appears to recognize the person behind the flashlight and says... What are you doing out in this mess? But he doesn't get an answer. He just gets a kick to the balls. At least that's what it looks like. I'm guessing he's been stabbed, but it's below the camera, and it just looks like he bends over like someone kicked him in the balls. <laughs> oh, I don't know square. <laughs> well, our POV killer then goes to the generator building and shuts off all the power. We then watch Bill take 10 minutes to light two lanterns. He thinks the generator might be out of gas, so he's going to go check it. At least this time, there really is a reason to check the generator. (laughs) Alice offers to go with him, but he tells her to stay here and get some sleep. Bill goes out to the generator shed and checks the gas, which appears to be full, and then begins to check what else could possibly be wrong with it. Now, all the killer did was turn it off, so it should be as simple as just restarting it, but I guess that's just too much for Bill to suss out. <laughs> so I don't have time for this right now, honestly. I'm way too busy looking for a problem that doesn't exist. <laughs> well, next, Alice screams herself awake, calling Bill's name until she remembers he's gone off to check the generator. So Alice decides to make some coffee. And we watch her make the entire fucking cup of coffee <laughs> starting with boiling the goddamn water i almost came unglued for a minute and 56 fucking seconds we watched this woman make a cup of coffee for almost 2 minutes why yeah. why is this happening <laughs> this whole movie is like this why are they doing this to us <laughs> what did we do to them and then she doesn't even drink it she just fixes it and leaves to go look for Bill, making that last minute and 56 seconds even more pointless. She's like, well, okay, that's done. I guess I should get back to business. Check that off the list. Now let's go look for Bill. Drives me crazy. <laughs> well, next we see Alice walking around the camp for another five minutes yelling for Bill. She eventually arrives at the generator shed and finds the door has been left open. She sees Bill's red poncho inside, but no sign of Bill himself. Alice goes to leave and closes the shed door, but when she does, we see Bill has been nailed to the outside of the door with arrows. One through his eye, one through his neck, one through his abdomen, and one in the groin. Ouch! 
It also appears his throat has been slashed. Again, more amazing makeup work from Tom Savini. Yeah, this one is a really fun one, I think, A, just because this one harkens back to, uh, you know, what we see in Halloween where you have the person suspended against the wall. And Mm -hmm. it's just, I feel like even though, yes, it's a copycat, it's still, it's, I love that kill. I just love that idea of a you get the the shock from it the person that finds it but also again i think it well in this movie it's a little bit strange but you know in halloween we have the aspect of like that goes to show mike myers strength you know he can literally Mm -hmm. pick this person up and suspend him against the wall this one it doesn't make as much sense but i can (laughs) i I still enjoy it that has been a big point of contention with this movie is uh, a lot of things are done that it doesn't seem like it's possible this killer could have done it but that's fine hell hath no fury right exactly all right well (laughs) it's also not going to be the only time we see them kind of uh blatantly rip off halloween yeah in its kills we got another one coming up well alice screams in terror at the sight of bill's murdered corpse and takes off running she makes her way back to the main lodge and shuts the door behind her but the door doesn't lock and since there's obviously now a stark raving maniac on the loose she's gonna want to get that door secured Now, keep in mind, this door opens outward. So she decides to take a rope, tie one end around the door handle and the other around a heavy wooden beam on the ceiling. Awesome. Great. That'll totally work. If someone tries to open the door, the rope will be pulled taut and keep the door shut. Perfect. We then have to watch her stack furniture against the door (laughs) for another two minutes. A door that opens outward. What does this furniture accomplish? <laughs> so that if the killer gets through the door, it'll be a mild inconvenience that they have to push it out of the way? Great. Now I have to go over this furniture mountain. This is annoying. Is there some sort of rule in film that your movie has to be a certain length in order to be considered a feature-length film? <laughs> because we saw the same thing in Madman, where they have these scenes that go on way longer than needed. Yeah. And it just seems like they're stretching for time. Mm-hmm. I have no explanation for it. <laughs> Well, eventually, <laughs> we don't have the answers. Guys. I don't. I'm asking them. What do you guys think? Well, eventually, she throws every small piece of furniture she can find against the door, and she arms herself with a bat and a meat fork. She thinks she hears something outside, but it just turns out to be loons out on the lake. She takes a big sigh of relief and says, what am I going to do? As surprise, here's Brenda as Brenda's body, bound and bloody, is thrown through the kitchen window. Actually, this was Tom Savini that threw himself through the window for this stunt, since there were no stunt doubles. (laughs) We then see Alice react to the horror of seeing Brenda for like a full minute. She whimpers and crawls around, slowly making her way out of the kitchen. It's like, just go. We've all seen it. It's horrifying. Just go. (laughs) Get up and go, please. Well, she makes her way back into the living room area and sees a Jeep pull up outside. Thinking it's Steve, she believes she's safe. So she goes to the door and now has to move all of the furniture out of the way. Oh, my God. <laughs> so she all this was just, just to trap herself inside. Yep. It's just so, okay, we know she's going to have to undo that. That's more time we can get in here stretching this out to our full 90 minutes. 
<laughs> well, she finally gets the door open and runs outside, but hold the damn phone. That's not Steve. This is I, not Steve. I mean, we already knew Steve got kicked in the balls earlier. Well, Alice stops dead in her tracks and says, who are you? The same thing the audience is wondering as we see a lovely middle-aged woman get out of the car. Why, I'm Miss Voorhees, an old friend of the Christie's. Well, it may not be Steve, but this bitch will do. And Alice says, I'm so glad, and goes running into Miss Voorhees' arms. Now, before things get too crazy, because I know y'all recognize the name Voorhees, and you know shit's about to go off, let's get some trivia out of the way. So, Miss Voorhees is played by the late Betsy Palmer, who had worked in film and television for years before famously taking the role of Jason's murderous mother, simply because she needed a new car, even though she thought the script was, quote, a piece of shit, end quote. <laughs> However, Palmer, being a professional, embraced the role and, being a method actress, even gave Miss Voorhees a detailed backstory. And yes, I keep referring to her as Miss Voorhees, not Pamela. Fans of the franchise know that her first name is Pamela, but we don't find out that information until the fourth movie. So right now, she's still just Miss Voorhees. So she imagined Miss Voorhees hated sexual transgression because she herself had Jason out of wedlock with a high school boyfriend and her parents ultimately disowned her for her sins because that, quote, isn't something that good girls do. With the success of the film, Palmer would join several of her cast and crewmates on the con circuit, delighting in reaching new fans that she may have never been exposed to if it wasn't for this silly little horror movie. She also delights in telling people she has no idea who this character is in the hockey mask since her son Jason drowned in 1957, which I think is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Betsy Palmer does have a few other creepy credits to her name, including Friday the 13th Part 2, Electric Boogaloo, The Fear Resurrection, Penny Dreadful, and Bell Witch, the movie. I wonder if she needed a new car each time she did a movie. <laughs> She's like, well, this one's old. I guess I'll do another movie real quick. <laughs> okay, well, back to it. Alice is near inconsolable, but Miss Voorhees keeps insisting that she used to work for the Christies and she's going to take care of her. So the two head inside, and when Miss Voorhees sees Brenda's body and wonders out loud what monster could have done this, she also provides us with the answers we've been looking for. She says, it's this place, and that Steve should have never opened this place again. Did you know a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. His name was Jason. I was working the day it happened, preparing meals. I was the cook. Jason should have been watched, and she grabs Alice and shakes her. She then starts to have delusions of her son drowning, saying, Help me, Mommy. She says, I am Jason. She then goes on to explain that she's Jason's mother, and today was Jason's birthday, so she couldn't let them open this place again, not after what happened to her sweet, innocent Jason. She then starts to get angry and pull her knife, approaching Alice. You let him drown. You never paid any attention. Look what you did to him. Miss Voorhees then lunges at Alice with the knife, but Alice manages to grab the fireplace poker, knocking the knife out of Miss V's hand and pushing her to the ground. Alice then manages to escape outside. 
Alice first tries to take Miss V's Jeep, but finds a dead Annie in the passenger seat. She then runs toward the front of the camp, but Steve's body falls down from a tree, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. But we the do. Sky. <laughs> but we do finally see a knife in his gut, so he didn't just get kicked in the nuts. Uh, this is also a blatant ripoff of Bob's dead body reveal in Halloween. Well, Alice flips out, as you can imagine, and goes running off. But now Miss V is up and Adam again and comes out in time to see where Alice went. Miss V then starts speaking in the voice of a little kid and says, Kill her, Mommy. Kill her. Don't let her get away, Mommy. Don't let her live. To which she answers herself and says, I won't, Jason. Alice then makes her way to a garage and finds a whole fucking armory. Why are there so many guns here? <laughs> and we're just now getting the guns? It's guns? gun camp. <laughs> it should have been our first go-to. Meanwhile, Miss V has made it back to the generator shed and gets it turned back on in like two seconds. See, Bill, it wasn't that hard. <laughs> now the lights are back on and Alice starts freaking out because she knows Miss V is coming she tries desperately to get to the bullets, but they're locked up in a drawer. Miss V bursts in and starts talking like her kid again. Kill her, Mommy! Kill her! Then Miss V lunges for Alice, who pokes at her with the gun, but Miss V just knocks it out of the way. Miss V then advances on Alice and starts bitch-slapping the shit out of her. <laughs> Miss V then tosses Alice onto a table, which comes crashing down to the floor. But Alice is then able to get her hands back on a weapon and clubs Miss V right in the V. Ugh. <laughs> she then smacks Miss V in the face, sending her flying backwards, giving her enough time to escape. So... Real quickly, while rehearsing this scene, Palmer, because of her theater training, actually slapped King in the face. Because in the theater, when you're called to slap someone, you actually slap them. But King immediately dropped to the floor and began crying, Sean, she hit me. Palmer says, well, of course I hit her. We're rehearsing the scene. So Sean has to say, no, Betsy, we don't hit people in movies. We miss them. We'll add the sound in later. <laughs> She, of course, had to apologize and just be like, oh, I, she honestly didn't know. Oh, that's so cute. That is, that's amazing. <laughs> she just slaps the crap out of her. Just, just thinking that was what she's supposed to do. Well, Miss V comes out of the garage and goes on the hunt again for Alice. We see Miss V pass a stack of wood only to find out Alice was hiding there waiting for her to pass. This enables Alice to double back to the main lodge. Alice then turns off all the lights and locks herself inside the pantry. Why there's a lock on the inside of the pantry, we'll never know. I guess there's a fear of beans getting out. But Miss V isn't fooled too long and comes back to the lodge too. And Alice can hear her searching for her. Miss V then comes in the kitchen area and turns on the light. And we can see her walking back and forth on the other side of the door. But eventually, it sounds like she leaves and Alice is able to relax a bit. But then we see the door handle behind Alice start to turn and then shake as Miss V has returned and is bound and determined to get in that pantry. Give me them beans. <laughs> I know you're holding out on some of them nutty buddies. <laughs> well, Miss V machetes her way into the wooden door, giving her her best Jack Torrance impersonation before letting herself inside. But Alice arms herself with a cast iron skillet 
blocking Miss V's attacks, enabling her to get one good whack in, knocking Miss V unconscious. Alice makes her way down to the water's edge and just kind of sits there. She's like, wow, that was intense. I need to take a break. It's time to relax. Uh, (laughs) This, of course, gives Miss V plenty of time to track her down. And she comes up behind her and takes a swing with the machete. But Alice is able to block it with a boat oar. The two then go full-on beast mode against each other in a fight scene choreographed by Tom Savini, since there was no budget for a fight coordinator. They go for some hardcore ground and pound, and Miss V gains the upper hand and starts slamming Alice's head into the sand. But Alice is able to break free, grabs the machete off the ground, turns around in slow motion, and brings the machete down, slicing off Miss V's head in one swift motion as we watch it pop off in all its glorious detail as blood spurts out of the very detailed neck wound as Miss V's hairy hands come into frame, (laughs) grasping at the space where her head used to be. It's another amazing effect from Tom Savini and his crew. And no, those are not actually Betsy Palmer's hands. Those hands belong to Tazo, Savini's assistant, who actually stood in for Betsy during the stunt. It's, again, it's another amazing kill. I, mm-hmm. I just wanted more. Yeah, this one is is a really fun one, I think, just because... You get the full-on scene of seeing the head pop off and fly in the air. You get the added neck wound, the blood splurts. It's just, it's fun. I love this scene. If I had to give one of my favorites in the movie, it would be this one. Just yeah. just for simply because I feel like this is true Savini magic. Just seeing, just to him go all out in these fun, campy, cheesy slasher wounds in all their glory. Yeah, yeah it's good <laughs> stuff. Well, Alice then gets in one of the canoes and lets herself drift out onto the lake. The sun comes up and Harry Manfredini's beautiful melodic score begins to play as we see the police arrive. And we zoom in on Alice in the boat as she looks off at the police, knowing that she's now safe. When holy mongoloid swamp boy out of nowhere (laughs) pots this slimy kid out of the water who grabs Alice around the neck, pulling her over backwards down into the depths of Crystal Lake. And just when you're screaming, how many new characters are we going to introduce in the last reel of this film? Alice screams and wakes up in the hospital. It was just a dream. She asks Sergeant Tierney, are they all dead? Tierney answers, yes, ma'am. My men pulled you out off the lake. We thought you were dead, too. The boy, Alice asks, is he dead, too? Tierney asks, who? Alice says, Jason, the one who attacked me. Tierney says, ma'am, we didn't find any boy. To which Alice says, then he's still there. (gasps) Bum, bum, bum. It wasn't a dream. Whoa. In the last shot, we push in on the waters of Crystal Lake and see small ripples and tiny bubbles rising from its depths. Is it Jason? I mean, I I guess so. We get 20 sequels, so it's not just turtles. (laughs) (laughs) So the gentleman with the distinction of playing the very first Jason Voorhees is actor Ari Lehman. And he's got like 34 creepy credits that have been either completed or currently filming. And you know I ain't doing all 34, but here are some of my favorite titles. He's in the turkey and giblet horror classic Thanksgiving. 
Easter Sunday, I guess he does all the non-traditional horror holidays. Yeah. Uh, pie Day Die Day, uh, and that's pie as in math, not the fruit-filled pastry. Of course, as it should be. Leaf Blower Massacre 2. Mm, a classic. Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> Easter Holocaust. It's unknown whether this is a sequel to Easter Sunday or not. Slutty the Clown. Oh. Plus, he's in Cheerleader Camp to the Death, the sequel to Cheerleader Camp, which we covered a couple of weeks ago. Very nice there you go so let's talk about that jump scare at the end because it is i think what really did it for this movie so cunningham purposely stretches out that last scene on the lake and the audience is all oh it's over and so they're gathering their coats making their way to the door trying to beat the traffic when all of a sudden who the fuck is this it had to be the most gleeful scare and, and that's what the audience is left with, remembering the fun of that scare. Mm-hmm. They totally forget they had to watch Alice make an entire fucking cup of coffee <laughs> and the rest of the 85 minutes of boring shit. That scare got people coming back again and again, bringing their friends so they too can get the shit scared out of them at the end. So that one scene, plus Savini's brilliance, I think is what made this movie such a huge box office success. I mean, not to mention the huge marketing budget. Uh, But that's the reason it got its first sequel. You know, Jason is finally made the new antagonist, and then the rest is horror history. Mm -hmm. And I think what helps support that theory is the fact that so many people try to take credit for coming up with that scene. The scene was never in the original script. In Miller's final draft, the film ended with Alice merely floating on the lake. But according to makeup designer Tom Savini, he claimed he had just seen Carrie and thought, well, we need a chair jumper like that. So he suggested, let's bring in Jason. But that fact has been disputed by both screenwriter Victor Miller and uncredited screenwriter Ron Kurtz, who was brought in by investors as a script doctor. Whatever the case, it's obviously left a lasting impression and was instrumental in turning what should have been a one-off cheap horror film into a multi-million dollar franchise. Even the reveal of Miss Voorhees as the killer would have just pissed me off. If I had seen this in the theaters and not known the twist, Mm -hmm. you present your film as a whodunit, but yet don't introduce the character of the murderer until they're revealed at the end to be (laughs) the murderer, making it impossible for your audience to answer the one question you pose to them. Who is the killer? Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Even actress Betsy Palmer recognized how shitty this was and campaigned to drop some sort of clue to the viewer, but Cunningham just shrugged it off. I mean, there's a reason this film was nominated for a Razzie for the worst film of that year. I mean, it's just, it's not a great film on its own, but it has these amazing moments in it that make it iconic. And that's what's the great thing about Friday the 13th. Yeah. It's, it's the history of it, and it's what it was going to become. It's not there yet. It is not there yet. <laughs> but it's going to become something great, and that's going to be Jason. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, uh, like you said, I think that's the uh, probably horcrux of this whole thing is just the, the whodunit aspect and the lack of, uh, you know, everybody playing the game, <laughs> basically. Uh, but also, I think, you know, and this is just speaking for myself, that 
I, I have found through this film and other films watching that I'm, t- I'm just really not like a POV fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I really like to be able to see, uh, even, even if, you know, we don't know who they are, like obviously what Jason becomes, even if it's a masked person, I like being able to see our person taking care of the action. It, it, mm-hmm. it makes it more of a movie versus making me feel like I'm a part of it when right. that's not what I came to the movie for. Yeah. I'm not a murderer. Yeah. I, I don't want to be responsible for any of this. <laughs> so yeah, that's definitely something I think that, um, was always, I guess, for lack of better words, the downfall, I guess, for this movie for me was just that aspect because there is so many things in this movie that have high, high potential to become great things because obviously 11 sequels later, it's become exactly what it wanted to be. Mm -hmm. But I think it's starting out on the wrong foot for me that's what has always kind of made me lean more towards into like like said three and four I've seen multiple times Mm -hmm. and I think that's because by this point we've established the killer we've established that we're no longer doing strictly all POV you know we are the ones doing it because again we're we're leaving this character a mystery for now all that's sussed out and we've established what what we want as as slasher viewers and I think that's why these seeds have to be planted for it to grow into what we we like and love when it comes to these horror franchises. Yeah, absolutely. If I had to recommend one movie from this series, of course, that's out of the ones that I've seen. It's going to be four. It's because that's what you think of when you think of that of this series. Yeah, and that is you think of Jason slaughtering people at a summer camp. Mm-hmm. That's what four is. Yeah, so that's what you want to see. Yeah, so, so go see that one. But we can still appreciate this because we can't have that without this. Exactly, absolutely. And, and so we're grateful for it. We we have problems. We have problems with the coffee. That that was a lot. <laughs> and at that point was just too much. <laughs> but the kills, you can't beat them. They're so good. They are Even really if good. they have admitted they done ripped some of them off, I don't care. It's still fun every time I see it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's the biggest thing too when it comes to these franchises and I know they're two separate franchises but uh you know we recently saw the Halloween kills uh, we streamed it at home and everything and, and and a lot of viewers found so many flaws with it um and of course we did too we were watching it and there's there's things down there that are goofy and silly and everything but I think being a fan of the Halloween franchise I've come to the I guess conclusion at this point that honestly I don't give a fuck what the fuck happens in the movie. I'm just here for the ride. I love the franchise. I love Michael Myers. I love, uh, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis and everything like that. And so it's just like, I'm, I'm doing exactly what they are wanting, which is giving them money to give me, give me movie. Yeah. (laughs) So that's exactly what this becomes. And, and I think when you're true fans of the franchise, all the flaws get lost because you're Absolutely. just there for the ride. Yeah, you you don't give a crap. Mm-hmm. You're the you are a fan at that point of the antagonist. Yeah, exactly. We all know we are here to see Jason. Yeah. We all know we're here to see Michael Myers. We all know we're here to see Freddy Krueger. That's what people want. Mm-hmm. And when you don't have that, and there's nothing else in your movie, <laughs> yeah, then it it falls flat. Mm-hmm. And and that's the flaw of the original one. Uh, but I still. Oh God! Some of these kills—they're so great. They are very good. Which which just means we need to talk about our prompts. Yeah, I was about to say it, it definitely still didn't leave lackluster prompts. I was able to answer every single one of them without question, mm-hmm. very easily. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's get to them. So, what did you have for your popcorn spiller? 
So for my popcorn spiller, uh, normally mine lie at the very beginning of the movie oftentimes just because I feel like that's when I always get kind of sucked into something. But this one for me actually ended up being Jason's mom's death. I think because we've you know, it, it is still a shock even watching it now <laughs> that we've spent this whole time getting to know or getting to trying to figure out who our killer is. And then we find out and then they're dead. Mm-hmm. And so it's just so kind of like I think... I can still put myself in the shoes of the first time viewer and kind of be like, what the fuck? You know, like still kind of in that moment of like shock that all of this has happened so fast. That ending scene, um, it is really fast paced and you're really, you know, keeping up with everything. You have the fight scenes going on and this is where the action picks up. Mm -hmm. Everything that's been kind of monotonous throughout the movie, this is where we are now. We are at the peak of it. And so I think for me, it was that moment of just seeing her her die it was it's still to this day i think kind of unexpected because we spent so much time trying to figure out who this person was yeah yeah (laughs) yeah and i think i need to add you know i i said how frustrating it would have been for me as a first-time viewer to go through this and learn who the killer was only to have them introduced there at the end that would have been frustrating However, I really do like the way that they handled the reveal in the fact that Alice thinks she's safe. Yes. And for a brief moment, for just a very brief moment, the audience does too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have that relief moment of, okay, good. Okay, someone can help her. It's, It's not who Alice thought it was, but she's safe. Yeah. But then we quickly get very leery of her thinking Mm -hmm. wait a minute something's not right here yeah so i do like that aspect of of making our heroines giving her the impression that she's safe and then pulling the rug out from Mm -hmm. under her Mm -hmm. so who ended up being or i guess i should say what ended up being your popcorn spiller for this movie I went with when Crazy Ralph pops up in the pantry. Yeah. When that music comes in, because I'm not kidding when I say they use the music effectively. Mm-hmm. They really, really did. And for the most part, this movie is very quiet. There's there's no music when just regular things are happening. Yes, yeah. So as she's doing this, all she's doing is cleaning up the kitchen. It's just another one of those scenes that they're just doing mundane things. And so when she opens the door and all of a sudden the music comes up and Crazy Ralph is standing there, it's like, holy fucking shit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it worked. Yeah. Yeah, that scene actually ended up getting me too. I know that I jumped in the movie as well. We both did. It was a really good one. And again, just just shout out to Ralph for for being the OG, trying to warn people. He was fun. (laughs) So who ended up being your scene stealer? I really enjoyed Brenda. I thought she was very well played by mm-hmm. actress Laurie Bartram, who I didn't really talk about since she didn't have any creepy credits to mention, but I thought she did a great job. She yeah. seemed very natural, especially since she had to put up with Ned's crap. <laughs> Unfortunately, Laurie passed away in 2007, but in all the interviews I've seen with her castmates, they always comment on how much they enjoyed working with her and how professional she was and how they just enjoyed her as a person. Mm-hmm. So I just, you know, out of all of them, she just kind of seemed really natural to me, but but yet somehow seemed really strong. I don't know. I just got a good vibe from her yeah. and I enjoyed her. What about you? Actually, it was who I picked too. And really? Yeah. And I put it in my notes in the aspect of like, 
and this is no this is no shade or anything towards Alice or anything, but Brenda gives off final girl vibes. She totally does. In the aspect of like you said, she's organically naturally there to be part of, you know, the story and she's uh, strong in her leadership skills and she's strong in her conversational skills and you can tell that she is a planner and she's there to fix things and stuff like that and she just kind of gives off this role of like I've got it together and I'm somebody that can help if something goes awry. Yeah. In every situation, she just always seemed to kind of take the lead when, Mm -hmm. when we all thought Ned was drowning. Yeah. She's the first one in the water, Mm -hmm. even though she's the object of this trick to begin with, she's going to get played. It still doesn't matter. She's going to put forth the effort (laughs) to do what needs to be done when they're in the lodge. She's the one that makes the suggestion to play the game. She's just always taking the lead and everybody just naturally goes with it because she just has that air yeah i just really enjoyed her as a character yeah yeah and so for me it was definitely because it's been many years since i've watched this movie and like i well i don't know if i've said it yet but this was actually my first time watching the movie the whole way through i i had only up until this point seen it and um like bits and pieces and like seeing it on countdowns and so you know obviously like Whitney said I had the ending spoiled so at this point I had basically seen the movie without seeing the movie uh so definitely going into it I was more drawn to her because I thought this was our final girl you know I hadn't really sussed out the full cast and characters yet Mm -hmm. um and then yeah whenever we're kind of led to follow Alice I was I was a little bit surprised because normally those kind of meeker characters are you know the ones to go down first <laughs> in these movies sometimes. Yeah. But yeah. So surprise, surprise. Brenda's our scene stealer. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> All right. Well, what was your favorite Gorgasm? We had a lot to choose from. Uh, so for me, it's uh, the axe to the head. Yes. Uh, just mine. Just because I just enjoy the, uh, well, all of it. The whole, I think what makes it for me is the creativity behind it to make it what it ended up being with Mm. the sound effects and everything like that Mm -hmm. and then we do get a good little linger shot of it just sitting there hanging out of her head oh yeah i'm like yes please more of that (laughs) yeah i mean my theory was if you can fool me into thinking i've seen something that happened Mm -hmm. that didn't i mean that's the very definition of movie magic yeah that's what we go to the movies for yeah absolutely it was great so uh, that leads us to memorable mortality who was that for you mine was jack's arrow through the neck (laughs) I feel like we just shared lists this week. <laughs> I mean, it's iconic. It is. It's what you think about when you think of this movie. Yeah, yeah. It looks incredible, especially considering it's over for all of these, mm-hmm. that they've aged so well. Plus, it has a cool story behind it with the stunt going wrong yes. and having to be saved in the nick of time. Everything about it is iconic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, and, and I don't know if that has to do with what, you know... How I've seen it in the aspect of up until this point, I hadn't seen the movie, but I had seen it on a bunch of countdown lists and Mm -hmm. everything like that. This is always the one that's shown. And so I think for me going into this movie, it was like the one I was like looking forward to, I guess, for lack of better words. So, yeah, it's just become synonymous with this movie that it. I feel like it just had to go into that slot. It just it is one of the the deaths from Friday the 13th that even in the commercials and everything it's just it's people what people expect of it yeah absolutely so then I guess that leads us to the last one which is you know does this one go into the dead zone or into the vault I mean it's going into the vault yeah there was never a question even though yes it gets boring as hell you cannot not put this in the vault yeah it's it started 
one of the biggest franchises mm-hmm. in horror history. Yeah. And you cannot deny that. And, and so it still has so many things to get excited about and love. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to be very bored about. Just, you know, <laughs> maybe have a game to play while you're watching. <laughs> but yeah, 100% it's going in the vault. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Well, we have one more little bit of business to take care of before we get out of here. And that is, we're doing another giveaway. I am very excited. This is a big time movie. Yeah, and I've heard that this movie is just beyond interesting, which I feel like is is just to be expected at this point from M. Night. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Uh, it's definitely one that as soon as we saw the trailer, we were intrigued. Yes, yes, for sure. Well, from visionary filmmaker M. Night Shyamalan comes the chilling and mysterious thriller Old. When a family discovers a secluded beach while on a tropical holiday, they quickly realize things are not as they seem when they start to age rapidly, reducing their lives into a single day. Own Old featuring all new bonus content now on digital 4K ultra high def, Blu-ray and DVD. So for our giveaway, we actually have five digital copies available, and we're so stoked to get them in your hands. So for details on how to enter to win a copy for yourself, be sure to check out our Facebook and Instagram this coming Tuesday, October 26th, for everything you need to know on how to enter. And again, we're so grateful that we have the opportunity to do these giveaways, and we just hope you guys enjoy them as well. Um, The giveaway will probably run, like I said, on Facebook and um, Instagram, as I've done in the past. All the details on how to enter will be there. And I'm just super stoked that you guys are going to get a copy of this crazy ass movie. And I can't wait to hear your thoughts after you guys watch it. Good luck. Well, that's going to do it for us. Episode 32 is in the can. In the can. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Dead Zone Drive-In on your favorite listening platform. And if you're looking for a way to support us, we would be so grateful if you would leave a rating and or review. And if you screenshot that review and send it to us, we're going to send you your very own Dead Zone Drive-In sticker for free. That's no money's honey. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at deadzonedrivein at gmail.com. And if you want to reach us by snail mail, our address is P.O. Box 12665, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, 73157. And if you want to hang out with us and fellow late night weirdos, check out the show notes for links to our socials and our Facebook group, The Dead Zone Drive-In Discussion Room. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to check out our Letterboxd, link down in the show notes, where I track all the horror we watch inside and outside of the screening room. And lastly, we'll be kicking off a new series next week by talking all about 2001's thriller, Joyride. So if you want to check out that trailer, don't worry, we've got you. The link is also down in the show notes. And of course, a big thank you to our house band Slime and the Maggot Boob. The drummer Sam made us all matching sweaters, and they are so soft. It was an interesting choice to just put his face and his face alone on the sweaters. But regardless, thanks, Sam. We'll be sure to wear them more as the weather gets cooler. I can't wait to take a selfie in it. And remember, if you're looking for the Dead Zone and want to join us for a weekend screening, if you've listened to this episode in its entirety, you'll have been provided with all the information you need. Don't forget your tickets. Good night, folks, and please buckle up. We'll be waiting for you. Thank, thank God it 
Friday fell on a on a thirteen this year. You know what I say? TGIF thirteen. <laughs> Here's to thirteen Fridays. Remember I guess five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> che- cheers to Friday thirteen. Am I right? They're like, uh, it's Monday the twenty seventh, ma'am. It's Friday thirteenth somewhere. You know what they say? Cheers. So long, penis eyes. <laughs> that was for you, Trish. <laughs> Folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Two.